Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, February 18th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, it may be nothing or it may be a harbinger of big things to come. On Tuesday, voters in San Francisco overwhelmingly chose to recall three city school board members. It is just the latest chapter in a national debate over who controls public education, and it may have huge implications for the midterms and beyond. And a new poll by our own Real Clear Opinion research team shows that 13 months after President Trump left office, Americans have become even more politically polarized. It's part of an ongoing study we're making of what we call the five tribes of American voters, and the divisions emerging between voting groups may not be exactly the ones you expect. And the presidential State of the Union is right around the corner. One keynote issue will almost certainly be support for local law enforcement. Will President Biden use the speech as an opportunity to bury the phrase defund the police? And what political price would he pay for doing that? Joining me to discuss all this are Tom Bevin, president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief, and A.B. Stoddard, columnist and associate editor. So, Tom, um, I was struck by the fact that on the site this morning, the top three articles all dealt with this local school board recall uh, in San Francisco. Um, It's unusual. It's been a pretty busy news week. Uh, But this local story is very prominent on the page today. And I'm not doubting the editorial judgment of our crack team at RCP. But tell me uh, how you view this and why is this, in your view, such an important story? Well, because it's not a local issue. I mean, it it was a local election, but it has massive national ramifications. It is of a piece with what we saw in Virginia and New Jersey and other places around the country in November. Um, This was not just a recall election. As as Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the, the salient fact here is this was an utter repudiation. I mean, the school board president 75%, 79%. I mean, this was an overwhelming rejection of of the school board president, the vice president, and another member, and the way they've conducted themselves. It is another data point that the storm is gathering for Democrats. Uh, Voters are angry. In particular, parents are angry. And not just conservative parents, liberal parents in bastions like San Francisco who have just had it up to their eyeballs. I mean, they've had enough and they are, they're making it known with their ballots uh, that they disapprove of the way Democrats handled the school closures have handled all the woke nonsense, the CRT, the, you know, in particular in, in uh, San Francisco, it was the renaming of something like 44 schools from, you know, George Washington and and uh, Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson that's what they were doing and spending their time and energy on while the schools were closed and kids were locked out and learning, you know, online or kind of learning. So I think that's why from an editorial perspective, this is such a, such an important story. This was not Birmingham, Alabama, this was San Francisco. And that's what makes it, I think a big story. So Amy, what about that? I mean, this is San Francisco, as Tom says, this is an even Northern Virginia. This is the bluest place in America, isn't it? Agreed. Um, But as Tom notes, Virginia was the siren. That was the first week of November. We're now almost in March. Democratic Party has been silent on this issue. They could have, they did, obviously, assess the returns from an upset election where the Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, was able to beat Terry McAuliffe, the candidate, with Biden voters in a state that Biden had won by 10. Why 
There's a lot of debate about critical race theory and school curriculum. And the candidate, Terry McAuliffe, stepped in it and said, parents shouldn't be involved in the design of school curriculum or something to that effect, doubling down. But he did not address the rage over learning loss and school closures that Democratic mom groups came to the campaign to tell them was a problem and to see the storm come, to warn about the storm coming. So I think that this was not an issue a year ago. And by the time we were double vaccinated and the schools opened in September or late August, there was that window of time where people's kids started having to stay home for eight days in a row because someone tested positive. And at that point, that's when people had enough. That's a year and a half into the pandemic, but everyone's vaccinated. It's over. It's time to proceed. And that was an election. That was an issue in a November election. The Democratic Party has known since the first week of November, and they've done nothing to mitigate this incredible liability that's staring them in the face. And the president and his presser last month was asked by a reporter if the Republicans would use this to their benefit as an issue in the election. And he said something like maybe or probably. And then he said 95% of the schools are closed. He's on the defense on this issue. Democrats are silent on this issue. Um, if they don't eat, if they don't lean into it and absorb what parents are telling them in their own party, they deserve every loss that they'll suffer this fall. Carl, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with what Tom and AB is saying, and I'll I'll add something to what AB said. The reason they have been silent, I, I imagine, is because the teachers' unions um, have become the special interest group they're most dependent on. Democrats. It started when Jimmy Carter ran for president, and you know polls. Uh, show that you know teachers are still held in you know higher esteem than journalists but but these these <laughs> these kinds of things that took place in San Francisco the onion the babylon bee couldn't have written anything more stupid and farcical than what they did at a time when the schools were closed and the teachers union was making no what wasn't even discussions how to reopen them and the school board was the teachers union. The president of the school board was a 28 year old teacher who ran for school board and she won with the teachers union backing. And they undertook, they wanted to change the names of 44 schools in, and they weren't just, it wasn't just George Washington, uh, Abram, Pam Lincoln, it was Diane Feinstein. They, they erased Californians from history, white Californians, the Hispanic Californians. And they, and they did so with these cursory searches uh, Google searches, apparently they got a Wikipedia and they got confused. They, one guy was a colonizer because he built a statue that's now deemed politically incorrect, but it wasn't, he didn't build a statue. His estate underwrote part of the statue. They, they took out Paul Revere because he supposedly done a, a campaign against an Indian tribe. He didn't, he led a military campaign against the British, but it was named, the campaign was named after the tribe that was a lo the local tribe because that's the place name in New England. If you looked at this carefully, if you were a San Francisco parent, these teachers are illiterate and they're historically illiterate. They're so stupid that you'd think it's malfeasance for me to send my kids to this to these schools. The teachers are idiots. By the way, this uh, school board president, after being recalled, said this is a victory for white supremacy. Right. Well, <laughs> what it was a victory for was Chinese American parents because what happened in what happened in San Francisco is that Asian parents, more than half of them Chinese, said no to this to this idea that standards mean nothing. There's a school there, Lowell High School. I, I, if you want to know why I know so much about California, I was born in San Francisco. My mother went to Mission High School there. These 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 were great schools. And um, anyway, there, there was a school there that attracted smart kids, and now. 
um, and white kids were overrepresented, and but now Chinese kids are quote overrepresented. And the Chinese parents said flatly, "No, we're not going to accept this. High educational standards is a tradition of ours for thousands of years, and we're going to fight for this for, to keep Lowell High School a good school, and we're going to go. We're going to fight against." Um, school closures, and we're going to fight against an imbecilic school board, uh, even if it means going against the teachers union. This was not, said nothing to do with Republicans or white supremacy. Everybody in in San Francisco is a Democrat. I was a little saucy this morning. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How do you really feel, Carl? Look, I would also say, uh, you know, we are seeing um, that uh, there, there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle this morning um, talking about internal polling from the DCCC, right? The Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee that shows uh, that swing voters in particular feel like the uh, Democrats' uh, restrictions on COVID have gone too far. 57% of voters in competitive congressional districts agree, agree with the statement Democrats in Congress have taken things too far in their pandemic response. And 66% of self identified swing voters in competitive uh, districts agree with that statement. There was another, and they don't define what taking things too far means, just the general concept. There were a couple other stories out this morning that were also, uh, you know, Mike Allen and Axios had something on the squad politics is backfiring. So it's this, you've got this combination of, of the school issue with parents, incessant focus on race and identity politics, the culture war stuff. And then you've got the, the broader issue, which just to put a data point on that. There's a Quinnipiac poll that came out this week and they asked simply, what's the most urgent issue facing the country? For Republicans, 36% said inflation. For independents, 32% said inflation. For Democrats, uh, 17% said climate change. 16% said election laws. And 13% said inflation. Democrats are, are not only they focused on the wrong things, they're not focused on the right things. Their, their priorities are so out of whack. Well, you can say that because you live in Chicago, but when climate change inundates California and the East Coast, Tom, <laughs> uh, wait, I'm, I'm I, have, not... I need to fact check you. <laughs> Pretty important issue. Well, you know what? Uh, it may be, but it's it's not as important to voters right now as inflation paying, you know, these uh, soaring prices. It doesn't seem to be uh slowing down anytime soon. It certainly wasn't transitory, as the administration first said. So it's that's a big problem for Democrats. If they can't get their priorities realigned with where the American people are, um, it's, it's only going to make things worse. Tom mentioned woke voters. Uh, Carl, that makes me think of this new survey we took at Real Clear Opinion Research, looking at these, what we call the five tribes of American voters. It's kind of an interesting construct. And this is actually updating a survey that was conducted uh, in 2018. Um, So I'm wondering, Carl, when you look at those two surveys in the time that's passed, what's changed with American voters? And in particular, how do you think that will impact the the midterms? Well, let's talk about Two aspects of it, and people want to know more. We we wrote a story on it, as Andy said, it's on our it was on our site uh, Thursday morning. It's easy to find. Um, Tom gave it good placement. He put it on the left hand column for the morning, and then put it in the front top billing on the afternoon, so it's easy to find. Um, there were two things that struck me. And we're going to have a lot of comments on the editorial judgment of Brooklyn politics. That was a compliment. Tom. I know. <laughs> anyway. And we're going to have more stories on it. Phil Wegman's working on one now. And I hope I hope Tom and Sean uh, Trendy weigh in as well. Uh, and A.B., you're welcome to write about it. Oh, okay. Thanks. Uh, anyway, the, fu- the, 
the five tribes, um, the, there were two things I'll mention. And then uh, you may have ideas of your own, Andy, and Tom does. Um, I was struck by two things. This woke group that we talk about. And we, before, in, in 2018, we named that tribe the resistance. Um, there's been, uh, with Donald Trump off the scene, and, and there's a, uh, other issues, you know, racial race. Uh, awareness and other issues coming to the fore. We we named it woke Democrats, and they're a you know about what twelve percent of the electorate. But it's a but it's a shrinking share, correct? Well, and they have slightly different priorities, and the priorities, as as Tom and Ab have both pointed out, don't align well for Democrats. There, there's one question I was struck by, and it's: Are there better countries than the United States? On a six on a one to seven scale, six was the average of woke Democrats. In other words. Seven, more than 71% of them think that there are better countries than the United States. This was way more than any other group, way more than institutional Democrats, twice as, more than twice as many, 30% was the highest for any other group. These are young people, people anim, animated by issues of racial justice, climate change. These, these, these are the people who want to change the te- textbooks to take down the statues. The people who haven't been to other countries in the world. Well, that's that's another <laughs> another point, Tom. I I, I found myself wondering, wondering, what country can they have in mind? Norway is a great country, but they wouldn't like Norway. It's too many white people. So I thought, <laughs> I don't know what they're getting at. But it's not a you know it's not a good look for the Democrats. And it, 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 what it means is that the Democrat the Democratic Party now has a, a pretty basic cultural fissure, just as the Republicans have had since Donald Trump has come along. Really, it's it's a mirror image of it. And that brings me to the second thing I was struck by is that the, the tribe that we identify as mainline Republicans, as opposed to the Make America Great crew, they're, a, they're again, a smaller group, doubled in size. The, the, the mainstream, mainline Republicans doubled in size. And these are people who voted for Glenn Youngkin. These are the people A.B. and Tom were talking about, swing voters, uh, moderate Republican suburban women. And that group has doubled in size. And so if you look at that, and look, Donald Trump has an airing and sort of almost a re- uncanny ability to screw things up for his own party. But you begin to see in this group the outlines of a post-Donald Trump Republican Party. A.B., do you see it that way? I mean, is there, is there a post-Trump consensus emerging? Well, they all voted for Trump, A.B., but they don't agree with him on issues of trade, race. They don't have racial resentment. They think immigration is a positive development. The mega crowd think it's a terrible development. Right. And I was interested to find that they were they had different reactions to the vaccine and they don't they don't um, indulge in the culture wars on on that on that issue. Um, I think it was refreshing to see that it's growing. I thought the number was really interesting. It's really one of the only groups in the whole survey that is growing significantly. And I do think there is not an establishment. I wouldn't even call them mainline Republicans because they don't really exist anymore. But the non, the sort of Trump adjacent, but looking for a fresh start sector of the party uh, is definitely trying to flex its muscles right now. They're trying, they're, they're, there are Republicans all over the country right now wondering what the midterm elections are going to tell us about the direction of the party and whether or not Donald Trump's endorsed candidates are going to fail or succeed or do something in the middle, uh, no matter what they do, he'll he'll enter 2023 ready to at least say he's running because that keeps him relevant and it keeps him raising money. And he will pretend that his endorsees did great on the scale of whatever compared to whatever. 
he'll say Mitch McConnell's candidates did poorly, but Mitch McConnell is hoping that their endorsement battle in this fall's election tells us something about where the party's going and whether or not there's enough to push back against Trumpism in 2023 and 2024. And so they are only endorsing one candidate that I know of in common, which is Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate race. Then they're parting ways on all the other candidacies. And the party um, is hoping that Mike Pence finds space from Trump and is this kind of fusion candidate and that there are Republican voters looking for that new direction. We'll see, because a lot of these primaries, particularly in the open ones, um, are going to be contests between one big lie candidate trying to outdo the next big lie candidate and one six truthers and, you know, super ethno-nationalists. And, and, and if they become the candidate, we'll see what happens in the general election campaign in terms of the establishment support or will they raise their hackles? I doubt it. So we'll see where the voters take us. You can see it in polling. I don't think it's remarkable, but you can see some people saying maybe it's time for Trump to just be a leader in the party and a big voice, but to sort of step aside. It's time to move on. I don't know uh, if his influence is really going to wane, and I'll be looking forward to seeing that, you know, maybe a year from now. Tom? Well, we shall see. Uh, <laughs> Always the look, safest think- statement on this podcast is we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Look, some of Trump's endorsements, uh, endorsed candidates thus far are struggling a bit. Ted Budd in North Carolina, uh, you know, David Perdue in the Georgia governor's race. He's, he's primarying uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, Trump has not endorsed in other races that, like Missouri and Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. So I think there is a sense that that Trump, I mean, he's obviously still the biggest and, and most popular uh, player in the Republican Party, I think his his endorsement will and does does carry weight. But given where the political climate is right now, it's so bad for Democrats everywhere they look that it may not matter who ends up winning some of these primaries. I mean, Karl Rove wrote in his in his Wall Street Journal piece this week. He said Dems don't have great options to transform the midterm political climate. Maybe the best they can do is pray their GOP opponents are morons. My comment on that is, you know, if history is any guide, you can look back and and. Even though the Dems are going to take a thumping in November, most likely, you, you know, you can always count on the GOP to, to piss away a, a Senate seat or two, you know, Sharon Angle in Nevada or Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, you know, seats that were eminently winnable for Republicans. Todd Akin, right, ran against uh, Claire McCaskill, I think. Was he one um, of those who, who who said you got rape, you laid? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Real, you know, real I mean, rape the, or something. Every cycle has has one one or two of those races, and and this cycle may not be different in that sense. Um, will that be related to Trump's endorsement? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I the broad the broad strokes of this political climate right now, though, is just terrible. I mean, there was a poll out earlier today, or I mean, earlier this week, state by state approval ratings for Joe Biden. He was only at fifty percent in one state. And that was California, I think. The rest of them, even blue states, Washington, Hawaii, I mean, you name it, you know, Connecticut, Rhode Island, he was under uh, 50%. And he was in the, you know, 30s in most states and 20s in a couple of states. So it's pretty grim right now. And they need to, Democrats need to recover some ground uh, to get back to sort of, you know, fighting shape against Republicans, at least uh, in the Senate and, and perhaps the House as well. Maybe. I think that what I was talking about has nothing to do with. Uh, this fall's results. I think in this fall's midterms, the Democrats are going to be wiped out. 
when the wave carries in these new Republicans, then we'll see the influence that the kind of candidates who win have on the party. And, and so that, so there is this, there's a scenario where if they do so well and they have so many seats, they won't need Jamie Herrera Butler, a moderate that Kevin McCarthy is trying to take care of. They won't need her vote uh, when, in the House and they will be answering to Marjorie Taylor Greene. If it's a slim majority and a slim margin, they still need Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. They still need Peter Meyer from you know, the people that are whatever the frontliners. If they, if they have a massive margin, they don't need the moderates and they will not moderate and they will answer to Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. That's what, that's what I will be looking at. Yeah, but I mean, what's the ultimate outcome of that, A.B.? Because even if Republicans have a great night in, in November, they'll end up with what, 52, 53 Senate seats, um, unless they're willing to go in and nuke the you know filibuster, legislative filibuster. What does it matter what the House does? It's not going to get through the Senate. Oh, it's not really that. It's like, I mean, yes, they'll be able to do investigations and impeachment are big. I'm just saying like, you know, when they want to pass just symbolic bills, um, you know, their sort of Green New Deal or whatever the hell that, that Marjorie Taylor, you know, including impeachment, they will have the margins and, and, the, and the, the moderate people, you know, the moderators won't matter. There, there will be no need to moderate. I think it'll be in early 2023, in the winter and spring of 2023, that we learn the direction the party is going and whether or not it feels that it needs to have any kind of reset. The voters will have a say in that, picking the candidates in the primary and general election process once we get into 2023, which is not going to be a bipartisan year where we're looking at uh, cooperation between the parties on immigration attack and energy and any of this stuff. It's going to be, they're going to have to impeach Joe Biden. And it's going to be a very competitive year because we probably are looking at an open uh, presidential race with Kamala Harris not even being, you know, the incumbent, you know, nominee. So it's going to be the Wild West in terms of the both parties. I think it's going to be an open election and that's going to make the environment very volatile. But I also think that the makeup of the House and Senate, depending on who those candidates are that win, will show us what the direction of the party is. And I'm not entirely confident that it's going to have moderated. Well, 2024 is a lifetime away, but there is something uh, a little closer on the horizon, and that's this State of the Union address, which is coming up March 1st. Senator Blumenthal is quoted in the Wall Street Journal today saying that his view of the State of the Union, he says it's all about the three C's, COVID, the cost of living, and crime. And AB, you wrote about crime this week, and uh, interesting article, interesting comments too, if you read the comments section. Andy, are you mad? Are you a masochist? Who would ever read the comments to the story? Rule number one, never <laughs> read the comments. Tell us about how you view crime and uh, and why you think that this is an opportunity for the Democrats. Well, to open, if I read the comments on my columns, I would not be here with you today. Um, so <laughs> I make it a point to never, ever do that. Um, never. The, the thing that I see is that the administration has blundered again after the failure of um, of police reform in Congress, where obviously that, that's where it's needed. It needs a legislative fix new laws, they started moving under pressure from their base to come up with executive actions. And while they were cobbling that together, they started, you know, they stayed so much uh, in the left lane that they were ignoring not only the 
the salience of crime as an issue to voters, pers- uh, uh, you know, public safety, security in their neighborhoods and communities being a top concern for voters. But they also they didn't understand that the backlash they were you know facing from the police was going to get worse. So Biden enjoyed the support of police um, in his career until the 2020 election when all of the top organizations endorsed Donald Trump. So it's kind of too late for the Democrats, as we've all talked about. And on issue after issue, there he doesn't get an instant reset, a chance for that. You can't instantly reset on inflation. It's driving Americans crazy. They're extremely worried. Most people have never seen price hikes like this in their lifetime. And they don't believe the White House BS lying about how it's transitory, even though experts say it might wane by the end of this year. No one's going to believe it. You can't reset on, on inflation at the state of the union. You can't really even reset on COVID. But you can. You could lean into this issue. You could have a police leader there, Mayor Eric Adams of New York there, and announce that you've come to an agreement that is supported by the police that increases accountability for bad cops, but also gets at some strengthening of community policing or whatever the, the, the left wants and the Democratic Party wants, in addition to fighting ghost guns and all this proliferation of gun violence, which he's been working with the mayor of New York on. You can speak to your base in the middle of the same time, and you can shut down this argument once and for all that the Biden administration is anti-police. It's really, really important, um, though the president has said publicly now and then, we don't want to defund the police, which he said at this event with the mayor in New York. Nobody hears it. It's He has not struck a nerve, gone viral, you know, beat his chest about this. The State of the Union is, his, I believe, his last chance to do it. It's the perfect platform to do it, to announce something that cuts down the middle, addresses concerns about police accountability and public safety, and creates a rapprochement with police and a reset with swing voters. Carl, this is what uh, some people call a sister soldier moment, I guess, which uh, or an opportunity for that. Bill Clinton took on a female rapper, as I recall. Um, this is ancient history, but I think I remember that right. Yeah, 1992 campaign. Yeah. The NCAA crowd, I was there. They were stunned. <laughs> Clinton, it seemed, Clinton had sort of sucker punched them. Uh, you know, AB wrote about that. And, and the public's, I think the story's gone on now for a year. Um, they're a little more sophisticated in that. And it's going to take policy changes. You know, the one of the things the police keep telling anybody who listen is, we're arresting these guys and the courts are letting them go and they're letting them go on bail. A, a shock, a shocking number of, of, of the most heinous murders, this case in Wisconsin, where this guy drove into a crowd and killed all these people. He was like, go on bail. He'd already tried to run over somebody with the car, his, his girlfriend and stabbed her. He should never have we let violent felons, uh, people and felons, because most of them have records, but also people accuse of these violent felonies so easily. And this is, this is the prosecutors. This is a, something that's been going on for years. Uh, the open, what's George Soros group called? The open society, the open. I think it's open society. Whatever. It, it's funded all of these uh, reform prosecutors and some of what they wanted to do was good. But if you're looking at racial reconciliation, racial reckoning, racial equity, and you're saying, oh, we're arresting and imprisoning too many black men. Okay. that That's worth talking about. But these lives that have been lost and these soaring murder rates are, are African-American people predominantly too. And so the, the Democrats, 
have gotten themselves in a strange place where they're only talking about half the problem. And meanwhile, the public is being treated to headlines, you know, homicide soar in district Maryland suburbs in 2021. That's the Washington Post. They're not right-wing publications. Murders in U.S. cities near record highs in 2021. Uh, homicides continue in increase in major U.S. cities. That's the Council on Criminal Justice. Uh, CBS has the same thing. Everybody, this Americans are afraid for their personal safety. And the and the policies that Democratic prosecutors have put in place seem to be making it worse. And yet, the, and, but most of the time, the mainstream press was covering us that they, if you mentioned George Soros, you were accused of being anti-Semitic. Most people don't know he's Jewish. He, he's never been active in Judaism or the Jewish community. That's not how he presents himself to the world. He happens to be Jewish, but that's not his thing. He's a progressive guy who's got a lot of money and he's been spending it. But I think that, I think, I, if you read AB's column, I'd encourage everybody to listen to, listen to it. And I, I agree with her kind of reluctant conclusion that Biden probably won't do this anyway, but but it may even be too late for that, Andy. I, the Democrats have to do what AB Stoddard is talking about in these negotiations. They have to, have to compromise with Republicans. They have to actually have a criminal justice reform that not only tackles police excess, but is perceived to be... Can, that public safety is a factor that they can't just put that off the table. That's not, that's not going to work. It's not good policy. And it's not what the Democrats have done since Bill Clinton's day. They've been pretty good on this issue until recently. So Tom, you know, you're out there in Chicago, a little bit of a crime problem out there, I guess. And, uh, (laughs) but I'm also, you know, I'm I'm curious about sort of mayors in this thing, especially mayor Adams um, uh, in New York. He said he was committed to aiding uh, Biden's reset. He said he pledged to stand shoulder to shoulder with him on this. Adams is a former uh, police officer, I guess. Police captain in the NYPD. Yeah, yeah he's, he, but he refers to uh, Biden as my dude. He called himself the Biden of Brooklyn. <laughs> so. so, I mean, uh, is that is that a path forward here? I mean, is there sort of an alliance that could be made between someone like Adams and Biden on this? Yes. However, you also have, to Carl's point, you have this Manhattan DA, right, who basically wrote like this crazy you know, memo slash guidance for how they were going to go basically go soft on crime and created this, this, uh, you know, cognitive dissonance between the the mayor's office and, and, and unfortunately though, in other cities, you look at DC, but here we have, you know, our mayor, she just hasn't gotten a handle on crime. We also have a very liberal prosecutor in Kim Fox. She's been at odds with uh, the mayor at certain times over over policy issues. And it's not just homicides. I mean, in Chicago, for example, you've got carjackings that are up 300% and they're happening all over the city. So this is not confined to the worst neighborhoods in town. These things are happening right down on the Magnificent Mile. They're happening Tuesday afternoons and Wednesday evenings. I mean, these are and that's when it becomes real to suburban voters. When you see this stuff happening, particularly uh, you know, those voters who, who suburban women and, and others, um, when you're talking about education and you're talking about crime, um, that's the, those are very potent issues. And the Democrats have, I think, failed to get a handle on them. And Carl's right, as much as there's been talk about social justice and BLM and all of that, you know, I wake up every morning and there's a headline about how many, you know, every Monday about how many people in Chicago were shot and killed. Uh, over the weekend. And the numbers, thankfully, I think this year 
are not as bad as they were last year, but the vast majority of those uh, victims are minorities. We, we tolerate it because we become desensitized to it, but there's no, there's no national outcry. There's no emergency. There are no, there are no summits and no, you know, GoFundMe pages and, and, and none of the, the same type of, of energy and commitment is put toward solving that problem um, because that problem is complex uh, and it requires some real tough conversations for uh, a lot of different stakeholders. So back to, back to Joe Biden, what he's going to say, I just want to go on record as I do every year. I hate the state of the union. I think it's a sham. <laughs> it's all kabuki theater. Just write it down and send it to Congress like they used to do back in the olden days. <laughs> He's going to talk, you know, and, and maybe Eric Adams will be in his box. But unless and until there, there are changes in the in the, the priorities and the level of urgency uh, within the entire hierarchy of the Democratic Party from these mayors you know, down at the local level, all the way up to senators and even the president. Um, it's just it's just talk. It's not going to change the reality on the ground. And that right now, that reality on the ground is working against Democrats politically. It is. Well, we're just about out of time here. But um, Tom has thrown a wet blanket over the uh, importance <laughs> of the State of the Union. I but- know people love the pomp and circumstance. I just <laughs> I am not one of them. But AB, I, I'm sure we'll we'll be talking more about the State of the Union as it comes up. Uh, but AB, tell me what you'll be looking for in the State of the Union. It's not too early to start thinking about that. So, um, what are you looking for? Well, I, you know, again, I, none of these things that I have suggested are going to work before the midterms. Doesn't mean that I don't think that Joe Biden should not try to reclaim his relationship with police and and the middle on this issue, because it's nuts. There's a lot of resetting that needs to happen in the State of the Union. And I think the president, um, you know, finds himself uh, trying to sell issues to the American people that pull well, like, you know, build back better and $35 insulin and stuff. It does, but it's not what they're focused on. And so he really needs to return to the economy and COVID. He will mention all these other things, climate change, stuff that his coalition wants to hear about. But I think that it's essential that he realize that he his focus last winter, his sole focus on COVID and the economy is the sole focus of this country. And until unless he gets us out of this tunnel, the rest of the stuff is just, um, you know, a bunch of dressing. So if he's smart, I think he'll return to that message. Um, it will not change the trajectory for the party heading into these losses this fall. But I think in terms of... Um, using a platform that he knows where he will be heard. I mean, Tom won't be hearing him, but he certainly will. Um, if he says some things that, that are, are dramatic, right. They go viral and people find out about them for within the next 48 hours. He can, you know, he, he can, he can refocus his message on those two things that are priorities and everyone's concerns. Um, and I, that's what I think he should do. If he gets lost in a big needle point of, a million things that, you know, the, the, the coalition needs. Uh, it's really a big waste of his last opportunity before the election and before a year where I think the Democratic Party's going to, I mean, I think in 2023, by his next State of the Union, I think the party's going to start blowing up, as I said, because I think there's going to be an open primary, whether he's announced he's leaving or not. So this is really kind of a last opportunity to be heard. For the record, I'm going to watch the State of the Union because it's my job. I just am not going to like it. <laughs> I'm not either. I, mean, I have a glass of wine to try and make it go down, you know, a little, little, little smoother. But and I know why Tom's going to watch it. 
He's going to watch the very end because he's curious if Kevin McCarthy will tear up Joe Biden's speech the way Pelosi (laughs) did to Trump. God, I hope not. (laughs) Well, um, we're going to leave it there then. Um, We will be uh, back before the State of the Union, so we'll be talking more about that. But for today, I want to thank A.B. Stoddard, Carl Cannon, and Tom Babin. So we're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. And if you want a deep dive on the military situation in Ukraine, which we didn't talk about today, I highly recommend yesterday's Real Clear Defense podcast. Uh, John Sorensen and John Waters talked to Ben Conable, who's very knowledgeable. He's a retired Marine Corps intelligence officer. Really interesting podcast. So if you get a chance, uh, check that out. As ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or a publication with whom you disagree. It may be A.B. Stoddard this week. It may be Carl's piece on our latest poll of American voters. Or you might just generally disagree with Tom's editorial judgment um, when it comes to what gets on the front page of the site. So I'll leave it there, but thank you for listening. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>